This is R.J. Allen, and you're listening to Rough Drafts. This is the podcast where you can get a sneak peek at the early drafts of my novels before they're published. For more information, go to our website at rjallen.com. That's R-J-A-L-A-N.com. Season 1, Episode 11, The Seekers Series, Fragments, Chapter 6, Part 1. Lars was in the habit of arriving at the office before dawn, partly to make time for trips to Grandpa's farm, and partly because Dad was such an early riser. The smell of Dad's eggs and coffee inevitably aroused Lars. Today, he woke to the absence of that smell. He checked the time. It was after four. The kitchen showed evidence of a cold breakfast so Dad must have foregone their custom and already left. At the office, he peeked in on Dad, already at his desk, but something was wrong. Dad was sitting head down, face in his hands, elbows planted on a thick drawing. Lars rapped on the doorframe, and when Dad looked up, his face was gray, his eyes red, Whoa, Lars whistled. What's wrong? Dad lowered his head and began to jerk in silent sobs. I I can't do this anymore. After crossing the room, Lars laid a hand on his shoulder. Can't do what? Dad waved at the drawing. This thing bids next week, and there's no way I can get it done. The drawing was for the Capitol Event Center. Lars frowned. We decided not to bid that job. It's too big. We have to bid it. Why? There's no way we can do a job that size, especially on top of our other contracts. When Dad averted his eyes, Lars's gut dropped. He tightened his grip on Dad's shoulder. What aren't you telling me? We need this job. What's going on? A pile of envelopes on the floor bore certified mail stamps. Lars picked them up. One by one, he slipped out the contents. Now he held a stack of contracts, all stamped with large red letters canceled. He dropped into the nearest chair. When did this happen? How many did we lose? All of them that mattered, thanks to that restaurant jerk. We're done for. Dad tapped the drawing before him. This is our only hope. Lars whistled again. How can I help? No one else knows. No one can was hoping not to put this on you guys. I'm here for you. What do you need me to do? Dad nodded, his back straightened. Okay, here's what I'm thinking. (laughs) 
Father Curtis woke with a body-snapping jerk. Sweat soaked through his clothes. He cast about but could not tell where he was, the profound darkness adding to his disorientation. He waved his front of his face but saw nothing. Had he somehow lost his sight? His chest constricted, something cold squeezing the air from his lungs. But no. He must have fallen asleep, letting the candles burn out in this strange reading room. Hands shaking, he fumbled for the book of matches he kept in his robe's inner pocket. But his groping fingers touched traveling clothes, not his robe. He reoriented and dug the matches from his trousers pocket. Lighting one, he stood and searched for a candle, grabbed one from the table, and placed the match's last dwindling flame to the wick. He searched until he located a fresh supply of tapers in a cupboard. Then he replaced the candles around the room and added a single candle holder and a book of matches next to the bed for the next time he woke to utter darkness. Was there no clock? In his daily routine, plenty stood in ready view, so he never gained the habit of wearing a watch. Would he now be guessing at the passage of time? Was it yet morning, or had he slept through the day? The vivid dream flooded back, and he shook himself to dispel the lingering fear. His stomach growled. Good. A much better thing to focus on than growling wolves and churning darkness and purring lions. He made his way to the cupboard, mumbling to himself. Food there. Stay. Good dog. He unearthed an assortment of canned goods, cheeses, sausages, crackers. No gourmet feast, but he wouldn't starve. With a handily provided can opener, he opened some pork and beans, then shoveled them into his mouth, cold from the can, as he walked to the table where loose papers formed haphazard pyramids. He sorted through a random collection of old literature, poetry, songs, and other writings. No, not random. Something wove them together, an element in common. Several contained verses from the writings, but the text varied from the writings that he knew. One verse akin to the collected writings of the great teacher caught his eye. The verse he knew read, Rulers are appointed by the Eternal. They are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what he says, and you will have his approval, for he is the Eternal's servant for the greater good. In contrast, this verse ended differently. Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. Using the word God in place of the Eternal smacked of the old religions with their varying gods. The order taught that the Eternal was the only true God, while it forbade invoking the old gods. 
The order's rational religion had replaced all others, and much for the better if the stories of the old religious wars were any indication. Calling on this God caused Curtis to shiver at the thought of those violent times. Added to that, changes to the words altered the core meanings of the writings. Doing what is good? How would you apply such teachings to your life? Who gets to define what good means? Such anarchy would result. And what about the phrase, for your good? A perfect prescription for a selfish attitude. How did that protect the collective's interests? He stood, too agitated to sit, and paced the room, examining the tomes on the bookshelves. Some were books with recognizable titles. Most were not. Many matching volumes lined the shelves, bearing no titles at all. The spine of each of these volumes bore handwritten digits corresponding to an unfamiliar numbering system. He took one off the shelf, opened it, and thumbed through handwritten sheets similar to those on the table. This volume displayed writings from the great teacher's time, each, disturbingly, varied from the writings he knew, twisting and changing meanings, subverting the teachings. Feeling a dawning queasiness, he opened more volumes. Each contained similar collections. The more he read, the more his back stiffened. Why collect such non-canonical writings? Heresy and blasphemy were capital offenses, and this was high heresy, without a doubt. Why take such a risk? What was the point? Father Curtis closed the book and sat staring into the candlelight. He was not against studying the writings. He was even willing to debate the proper interpretation. Of course, age and wisdom had tempered those debates, His rash seminary forays into heresy were a short-lived juvenile phase, an old memory he preferred to forget. This was not interpretation, but an outright corruption. He loved the order, and he loved the writings. They were his anchor, the foundation upon which he had built his life. His other anchor was Professor Rule, his most trusted mentor, the one man who had been there for him. Being an orphan, Curtis cherished this friendship and the father he'd never had. Now, looking at these volumes and the evidence they represented, he lost his footing in this world. He imagined the feeling akin to a child who overhears a whispered conversation between beloved parents, only to learn they despised him. Or was this worse? The professor was involved in high crimes against the order. He was a destroyer of everything Curtis held dear. Further, he'd kept his duplicity hidden over decades of friendship or of supposed friendship. 
What kind of friend did that? The man he had most trusted was a fake, a heretic, and a liar. Pincers of panic gripped his chest, their chilled tongs becoming a vice around his heart. He sprang to his feet, pacing again. He would not be involved in this treason. But what to do? He was trapped here, locked in, having been made easy prey by those he had trusted. The order might even be on their way now, coming to capture him. If they found him here, all hope would be lost. All the evidence to convict him lay right here on the table. He needed to escape right away to distance himself from this madness. Breaths ragged, he climbed the ladder and searched for an exit, pounding and clawing at the hatch. It didn't open. He scrambled back down, grabbed a candle, and used it to inspect the bottom of the door. There was a wire loop. He inserted one finger and pulled. The door clicked open. He raised the lid a crack and peered into the empty room. Night draped the window. Who could guess what time it was? He put out the candle and eased open the door. In the dark corridor, no movement was visible. He slipped out of the room and stole down the hall on the balls of his feet, expecting a shot of discovery. In the dark street, he didn't know where he was, so he picked a direction and set off to find a recognizable landmark. He paused at the first cross street. He was halfway up a hill, the river at the bottom on his left. On a whim, he turned down the hill. Once he cleared the tall building, he had a sweeping view of the valley below. Nearby, the wagon train terminal lit up the night, a bright beacon set in a dark neighborhood. He'd escaped with no plan and no destination. Now he had both. Curtis passed through the dark, empty streets without seeing another soul. He searched but found no sign of dawn. He should be miles away before it came. Approaching the terminal grounds, he became more cautious. He stayed across the street, ducking behind the shoulder-high honeysuckle hedge lining the road. He hunched low and peeked through the foliage. Now, how to enter the freight yard unseen? The night perfume of the remaining pink and yellow honeysuckle blossoms drifted into his awareness, carrying fond memories of the years he had enjoyed with his grandmother. Such a hedge bordered her backyard next to the old metal swing set where he had played. He and the kids from the neighborhood gathered there regularly. Many summer afternoons passed by in the shade with his friends, crushing the blossoms to smell the deep, sweet scent and squeezing the berries to shoot a stream of red juice towards each other in mock battle. 
How he ached to be back in those simple days. A time with no worries of heresy and no thought of black-clad hunters. A delivery truck pulled to the curb across the street, blocking the terminal entrance. He used this opportunity to dash into the dense willow thatch at the freight yard's nearest end, careful not to be seen. He hadn't forgotten Professor Rule's warnings. If he was going to enlist Administrator German's aid in clearing his name, he had to avoid arrest between here and home. Emboldened, Curtis squared his shoulders. Yes, that old codger would know which strings to pull. He'd have this mess cleared up and Curtis back where he belonged, with his flock, the people who needed him most. He stayed deep inside the thick stand of saplings. The screen of green, frond-like leaves concealed his movements towards the property's working side. The wagon train was assembling on the apron, and he recognized freighters who worked out of Northwoods. Please let them be traveling north. He slipped from the thicket into the lighted yard, keeping his gait casual, like a bored freight hauler. He had drawn abreast of the train's rear when someone shouted from the terminal. A man was speaking into a radio, shouting to someone out of view, waving and pointing at Curtis. He dove back into the willows, whip-like branches slapping his face. Shots rang out, Bullets clipped branches behind him. Were they shooting at him? Why? He sprinted through the thicket and onto the street, making a beeline away from the industrial district. At a residential block, he stopped in a patch of evergreen shrubs. He rested hands on his knees and snuck a look over his shoulder. While he saw no immediate pursuers, the sound of a chase echoed from the terminal. But more troubling, shouts and running footsteps came from the opposite direction, from the center of town. They'd radioed for backup and had him trapped between two forces. He changed course, taking a lateral route to outrun the pincers before they closed. At a full sprint now, he made only minimal efforts to keep under cover, seeking speed as his best chance of escape. He broke out onto a street, bowling over a uniformed officer. Curtis didn't stop, but put on a greater burst of speed, blessing the eternal that he had kept up his daily workouts and runs. The pursuers were not in the condition he was in, and their footsteps were receding. He was gaining a lead. Then more men intercepted from ahead, moving in to block his path. He was surrounded and the wolves were closing fast. Physically fit or not, he could not keep up this pace. His legs were burning, beginning to falter, and the beginnings of a stitch stabbed his side. He rounded a corner away from the sounds of pursuit to confuse them with a change of direction. Out of the dark loomed a garden gate 
guarded by a stone lion like a proud desert king on a low pedestal. He dove behind the statue to allow the pursuit to pass him by. Had the dream prompted him? Souls slapping cobbles and heavy breathing grew nearer from his left. More running footsteps closed from the right. He lay on his belly, stifling his gasping breaths and peered between fern fronds. In the dim moonlight, uniformed officers stopped in front of the garden gate. They conferred in murmured words, too muffled for him to hear. One gestured in his direction. Curtis prayed under his breath as the pair moved towards his hiding place. An unseen weight of evil closed in like the dark presence of his dreams, reaching for him, the eagerness of the thing palpable in the air. 